Welcome to episode three of Darnton Watch, a podcast designed to support researchers investigating book publishing, circulation and reading practices to share their talks and papers online. This is a recording of Dr Emmett Stinson delivering the paper Self-Publishing Highbrow Literature at the 2018 Independent Publishing Conference held at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. Copyright in all content on Darnton Watch resides with the originating researcher. So the most notable examples of self-publishing success typically have been genre works that have sold in large numbers. So thinking of things like Andy Weir's The Martian or E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey. And often when you talk about self-publishing and if you've been to events on self-publishing, there are self-published authors there, everyone wants to talk about these very successful books, which are interesting and great, but not what I'm talking about today. These successes have often reinforced a broader sense among scholars and observers of the publishing industry that self-publishing is a practice which is only viable for these kinds of commercial works. Um, And there are are many examples of this. I won't go through it. Um, But there also have been some very notable examples of literary authors who've chosen to self-publish novels, um, as is the case of writers like Evan Dara, Adrian Jones Pearson, and Moya Costello, um, among others. Um, So whoops, that's the wrong way. What I want to do today is offer a case study of one successful highbrow self-published novel. I was going to do two, but then we'd be here for uh, too long. Um, Sergio de la Pava's A Naked Singularity, which was self-published in the United States in 2008. Um, And I want to suggest it tells us a few things about self-publishing highbrow literature and how this differs from these other successes that we hear about. While there are material pathways to success for self-published highbrow literature, they differ markedly from the pathways of successful genre works, or at least to some degree. And rather than finding success with ordinary readers, highbrow self-published novels are often aimed at significant literary mediators rather than everyday readers. And these mediators support the work through already established literary networks. And we'll see how that happens with Sergio's novel. Um, Before doing that, I do want to talk about some theorizations of self-published literature. Um, Nick Levy has argued for self-published novels as post-press literature uh, in a a widely cited article, um, arguing that um, post-press literature is created outside the established circles of book production, and he notes three key key characteristics of post-press literature. One, it is self-published. Two, it is distributed digitally. Uh, And three, it is strongly associated with particular genres of fiction. So this is, again, a reinforcing of those things like Fifty Shades of Grey and, and The Martian as the, as the you know, uh, emblematic or representative uh, exemplary works of self-published literature. Um, literary post-press works differ from the kinds that Levy's discussing um, in that successful examples actually accrue symbolic forms of recognition associated with the autonomous polar production in Bourdieu's formulation rather than significant economic capital. In this sense, Their forms of recognition follow the already established logic of the literary field that Bourdieu discusses rather than overturning it. And this suggests that post-press literature more generally, I'll just note, although it may rely on different kinds of structures and intermediaries, does not actually um, overturn the logic of the field as much as some of its proponents might like to claim at points, and by which I mean not scholarly proponents, but everyday proponents. Um, Also note that Post-press literary fiction often relies on self-published print distribution, um, though their production and, crucially, early reception are digital. So there's also a difference there that print really matters in a different way. Okay. Um, This accrual of symbolic capital from reputable mediators is extremely important for literary self-published works because, as Simone Murray notes, 
What, have, what, is, what have become increasingly evident since the first flush of enthusiasm for self-publishing are the practical impediments confronting authors of self-published titles. Newspapers won't review them. Bricks and mortar retailers decline to stalk them. And without a background in marketing and publicity, most self-published authors struggle to attract mainstream attention. Okay? Um, at the same time, within the highbrow sphere, as we'll see today, the self-published nature of a text can make it a novelty in ways that actually sustain discourse about it. So it can actually be a benefit in this sphere in a weird way. All right, so here we're looking at Sergio de la Pava's A Naked Singularity. There you can see the title, which just, uh, sorry, the cover, which just screams self-published book. Um, and there's a picture of uh, Sergio as well, um, who self-published the book in October 2008 under the imprint of Amante Press. I have emailed with him. I'm not just being pretentious by calling him Sergio. So just to stay, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, it's a 689-page novel. It's clearly located within an encyclopedic postmodern tradition of the novel. Um, it combines technical information about the legal system and theoretical physics with absurd and obsessive discussions of the honeymooners and a side plot about an elaborate heist. It even contains a recipe for empanadas. So, you know, it, it's got a lot of information, a lot of different stuff. It's very funny as well. It's a really good book, I will know. Uh, the novel was sent out to potential reviewers by Sergio's wife, Susanna. Um, who undertook, or so it would appear, the majority of the marketing duties for, her, for the novel. And I just want to acknowledge her work in this process. I think it's important to state. And we, you know, I'll leave it to you to discuss, the, the, uh, to discuss that breakdown. But that's how it went. And um, she did an enormous amount of work. OK. So she's sending out, Susanna's sending out the book to all different kinds of uh, reviewers. Um, and she sent it to Steve Donahue at Open Letters Monthly on April 8th of 2009. So we're talking about, you know, six months after its publication date. And he writes a review uh, of the book, a very positive review, um, which, as we'll see, becomes extremely influential. And um, the self-published nature of the text becomes the central organizing principle of the review. He states, any dedicated open-minded reader should lose sleep over outfits like Ex Libris. These organizations of the Internet's era to so-called vanity presses, you pay them a lump sum, you send them the manuscript of your book, they package it and give it an ISBN and make it available for book ordering giants like Ingram and Amazon, and then it sinks like a stone into the endless gray muck pond filled with 2.1 million other such manuscripts. Your friends and family will order their copies, and you'll at last be able to call yourself a published author, but the whole process is tainted in three steps. You paid to have it done, and anybody can pay to have it done because there's no quality control involved. So that's you know a pretty pretty nice set of statements about self-publishing. I think it's a you know um, five stars. Um, he actually says other things about it, and I'll and I'll note those in a minute. He, so it's a it's a bit of a gambit, really, um, a bit of a straw man that he's setting up there. Um, he goes on later in the review, though, to say, A Naked Singularity is by the first-time author, Sergio de la Pava. It was published by Ex Libris in 2008 with no fanfare and no acclaim, and it's a masterpiece. Um, and he says it propels the reader into a literary maelstrom worthy of Pynchon and Gaddis. These uh, comparisons will be very important, as we'll see shortly. Okay. Um, Veronica Scott Esposito uh, picks up this review and discusses it on April 30th, 2009, a few weeks later, um, on her blog. A couple weeks ago, I got a query from the publisher of A Naked Singularity, who appears to be the wife of the book's author. Uh, at any rate, it's a self-published title. I know what you're thinking. I love that, the assumption. I know what you're thinking. Um, because it was the same thing I thought. We don't even need to say what it is you're thinking. We're all thinking it about self-published titles. Um, but the query pointed me to this review of the book at Open Letters Monthly. I don't know whether or not it is a masterpiece, but I do know the author of that review, Steve Donahue, is a pretty tough critic who has read pretty widely 
this could be a major book that's flying under the radar. So just a few things there. We've got the assumption about self-publishing uh, there. We don't even need to state those assumptions because we just all know it. It's recommended by a friend, a trusted source, and that's really key in it. Um, and then we get that little tagline at the end, this could be a major book that's flying under the radar. All right. Um, so there are a lot of weird things that are happening in this reception. Um, Scott, uh, Veronica Scott Esposito also runs a journal called The Quarterly Conversation that goes on to publish a review of it, not by Esposito, but by Scott Brian Wilson in October of 2010. So we're now a year out from the original publication. Um, and the review is just glowing, um, just, you know, just loves the book. And you can see the, ki the kinds of comparisons that it likes to traffic in with this example. It's one of those fantastic, big, messy books like Darsonville's Cat or Infinite Jest or Women and Men, though it's not really like any of those books or those writers. Evan Dora's The Last Scrapbook and The Easy Chain are the most apt comparisons. The heavy, heavy use of dialogue will, of course, bring William Gaddis to mind as well. And then we get, I mean, messy as a compliment. Books that just fill themselves with facts and stories and subplots and digressions, and in doing so, create a much richer reading experience. In other words, messy means not commercial, i.e. not what you'd expect from self-published fiction. That's the, that's the way I read it, anyway. And we get these comparisons to all these big name authors, yet again. Um, this review, uh, the quarterly conversation review, is the moment where the book kind of blows up in a, in a, in a specific and, and now deceased, in many ways, blogosphere, literary blogosphere at the time, and all these different people start discussing it. Um, in a, in a more recent uh, discussion of Sergio de la Pava and his third novel, which came out um, just last year, Garth Risk Halberg, who's the author of uh, City on Fire, um, but I'll always now associate him with the character that's a compulsive of him on the TV show Younger, which makes him look like a real jerk, so it's totally unfair to him. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. Um, but um, yeah, um, he recently wrote about this and wrote about his experience of discovering the novel back when, and it attests to, I think, the way that, uh, the influence that these kinds of blogs had, and this is what he says. I first heard about the book in 2009 on an email from Susanna de la Pava um, of Amante Press. She'd read something I'd written about Joseph McElroy's Women and Men and said if I like both underdogs and mega novels, I might want to check out her naked singularity. But Halberg does an internet search, realizes that Susanna de la Pava and Sergio de la Pava are partners and that it's a self-published book. And he thinks, aha, a vanity project. Did I want to, quote, add it to my reading pile, end, end quote? No offense, but Jesus, no. Um, so, you know, he dismisses it. But then, sometime after Susanna de la Pava's email had disappeared, I came across a review by Scott Brian Wilson at Quarterly Conversation, which is glowing. And then he comes across Steve Donahue's review as well. It opens letter, Letters Monthly. Um, and he says, quote, these raves got my attention because the Quarterly Conversation and Open Letters Monthly are venues I've written for and that cover the kind of books I tend to like. So again, we can just see the networks here. They're made very explicit. Um, this is what I love about when people blog and write on the internet. They just, they say this stuff that's actually crazy if you think about it for a second and just tell you explicitly how things work um, without realizing it. Okay, so this early reception demonstrates a, two, a few things. In 2009, high reviewers generally uh, perceived self-published works as inferior or not worthy of attention, with the exception of Donahue, and this is where I want to be uh, fair to him. He does say that we should all lose sleep over iUniverse and Ex Libris and the like because the sheer number of ISBN manuscripts makes it dead certain we're missing some great books. And I think that's actually good, and it's one of the more democratic responses that's kind of going, look, gatekeepers are missing good books all the time. We know this. And, and that's true. That is fundamentally true. Um, okay. Despite being new or small, online literary journals and blogs were extremely influential among other influencers. I am using the past tense here because I think it's changed. Um, and thus formed a key part of highbrow literary networks at this point in time, 2008, 2009. 
Three, recommendations from trusted sources or agents within these networks carry significant weight that can add symbolic value to a book that might otherwise just seem like a vanity project. And four, the book's value is made intelligible through comparisons to established high-status authors, Pynchon, Gaddis, Wallace, Alexander Thoreau, so on, so forth. Okay. Um, ultimately, this novel gets republished, just to, uh, to and, and the way that happens is, again, through conversational reading. Um, Levi Stahl, um, who is a, uh, on the staff at Conversational Reading, but also works at University of Chicago Press, blogs about this as well. So again, we have access to kind of all this material about it. Um, and again, he emphasizes that um, he read the book because through, um, through the, the review of the Quarterly Conversation, because I knew Scott's taste well enough to trust his opinion, he says. So again, we see how that much that personal rec recommendation matters. Um, a lot of discussion about naked singularity. Interesting, Leanne Hearn's um, review, so here we get an Australian involved, an Australian author, Leanne Hearn's review um, also um, is very influential in making him look at it. And he goes on to compare it to other people. He compares it to Helen DeWitt's The Last Samurai, finally a woman it appears um, in here. All right, great. Um, as well as Melville, Dante, David Foster Wallace, and William Gaddis. All right. Um, but he then goes on, he says, for, yearly, for nearly a year now, I've carefully avoided uh, mentioning on this blog one of the best novels I read last year, one of the best novels I've read in a good while, Sergio de la Pava's Na Naked Singularity. Um, ordinarily, I would have been quoting from it here and praising it to the rooftops, but I didn't. I had many reasons, or really reason. A Naked Singularity was self-published, and I wanted to convince my employer, the University of Chicago Press, to publish it, and may we will, and I couldn't be more excited. Okay, so basically through this connection, Chicago University Press um, picks up the book uh, again. And he goes on to say how this is a good news story. This is this overlooked book. Now it's getting, we're going to republish it. We're going to get another shot. Well, um, University of Chicago Press does republish Naked Singularity in 2012, and De La Pava wins the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for a debut novel in 2013. In incredibly prestigious U.S. prize for a debut work. Really, really big deal um, to, to win this prize. Um, he goes on then to, the novel gets shortlisted for the inaugural Folio Prose in 2014. Um, it gets a little complicated because he actually self-publishes a second novel that uh, University of Chicago Press also republishes. It, it's a little bit of an awkward thing because it's not nearly as good, the second book. Um, so, but anyway, um, but he published his third novel in uh, 2018 with Pantheon. Uh, it's been widely reviewed in high-status publications like The New Yorker and elsewhere. There have been lots of profiles of him, and he's kind of, kind of everywhere. So here we get an, an example of a, of a success story. Okay. Um, before discussing this, I want to note that not all highbrow self-published works take this path, and I just want to mention some others. Um, Nicholas John Turner's Hang Him When He Is Not There is a de debut collection that was uh, launched and championed by Luke Stegman, then the associate publisher of Griffith Review. So this is an Australian book. Um, it was positively reviewed by Shannon Burns in The Australian and is now being republished by the UK publishing house This Splice, run by Australian author Daniel Davis Wood. Interestingly, this is the one book where the publisher's, the republished title is much uglier than the self-published title. Um, so that's, that's one notable thing about it. I, I wish I'd had the images up here, but it is. Um, so there you go. Um, so he's one example, and that's ongoing because it's just been published. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Evan Dora's The Easy Chain, 2008, was self-published by Aurora Publishers and reviewed in the quarterly uh, conversation, not publication as well. This was a follow-up to Dora's cult favorite novel, The Lost Scrapbook, which had been published by Fiction Collective to a high-status experimental publisher in the U.S. in 1996. So he's a weird one because he was, he was kind of an established entity or a cult favorite and published another book. Uh, 
The key thing, though, is that no one, know, well, people know, but publicly no one knows who Evan Dara is. I don't know who he is. He's a, a pseudonym in the real identity of the author is unknown. He's given no interviews, um, yeah, um, and so forth. Um, Adrian Jones, Pearson's Cow Country, was published in uh, 2015. Um, this novel, written under a pseudonym and published by Cow Eye Press, which is just a great name. You should follow them on Twitter if you don't, because they're funny. Um, drew significant attention in 2015 when Art Winslow wrote a piece in Harper's suggesting that it was a self-published novel by Thomas Pynchon. Alex Shepard in The New Republic about a week later subsequently identified A.J. Perry as the likely author of the work. And A.J. Perry had published two previous novels with traditional publishers. Um, Cow Eye Press has actually gone on to publish one work by the literary critic Daniel Green as well, so they have moved a little bit beyond just self-publishing, but they've also republished an A.J. Perry work as well. Um, and then lastly, we've got Moya, Moya Costello's Harriet Chandler, a novella. This short, deeply intertextual novel was self-published by Costello, a well-regarded Australian author of multiple works, and was positively reviewed in the Sydney Review of Books by Nicholas Joes. So we've got some different strategies here. We've got um, kind of mid-career authors who are self-publishing and staying self-publishing, and we've got early career authors who are trying to kind of break their career. Okay. So what can we say about highbrow post-press literature? Highbrow post-press literature traffics largely in symbolic capital rather than economic capital, and thus veers towards what Pierre Bourdieu has described as the autonomous pull of literary production, whereas other post-press literature would be associated with the heteronymous pull. Um, this suggests that self-publishing, rather than undermining or upending the logic of the literary field, extends existing logics in new ways. In a way, to me, this completes the other half of Levy's article on post-press literature, which kind of suggests that there's this change, and actually we're seeing that the self-publishing space is maybe replicating the existing field rather than undermining it. That's, that's one of the things I would suggest. Um, here, established agents within the highbrow networks of the literary field can lend symbolic capital to a self-published work through recommendations and comparisons to other high-status works. And some highbrow high post-press works are returned to traditional uh, publishers, as in the case of De La Pobre and Turner, while others continue to circulate as self-published authors. Early discussion or buzz about these works is created over digital media, online literary journals, social media blogs, and the like that serve as a hothouse for literary discourse. And many of these authors withhold their authorial personas in various ways, even though they self-publish. Um, and I didn't have more time to go into this, but I did want to talk about it. De La Pava initially did not give interviews and used his wife as an intermediary very much. There was only one photo of him on the internet, which looked like a mugshot almost, which considering there's a criminal lawyer is kind of funny. Um, Turner has generally avoided interviews. He tweets, but under, the, um, under Savage Motif, which is the name of the imprint that he came up, if you go to the Facebook page for the book, there's one photo of him with his head down like that, so you can't actually see him at all. I managed to find a photo of him in, the, in, a, in a Brisbane newspaper, but um, yeah. Um, Evan Dora is a pseudonym, as I mentioned, as is Adrian Jones Pearson um, as well. Okay? So often the author is withheld in various ways despite being self-published um, to create a sense of, you know, that the author is enigmatic in some way. The networks that support these kinds of work are overwhelmingly homosocial. Author reviewers and intermediaries for these works are mostly men, al almost entirely men. Um, you know, we, we have two, two female identifying people in this entire chain, basically. Um, the reception of these works is interesting insofar as they represent not a change in the field, but a change in the functioning of literary evaluation, I would argue. In the past, the initial buzz around authors might have been restricted to literary agents and insiders and would occur pre-publication as books were brought to auction. Um, but for these kinds of books, the buzz occurs post-publication in more public forums, and the buzz can then potentially be used to entice publishers. 
In other words, the selection of meritorious works and their promotion is being undertaken by a new class of public or semi-public literary intermediaries rather than by publishers. So here, it's that the site of the creation of symbolic capital is shifting, all right, rather than the field itself changing necessarily from publishers um, to a new class of mediators. A few final things. As Simone Murray has described it, this process is an example of the re, of re, uh, reintermediation, which we don't encounter a lot. We get a lot of disintermediation, but not a lot of reintermediation. Um, because actually self-publishing has come to replace the publishers and literary agents slash pile of unsolicited manuscripts as the unofficial research and development arm of print publishing um, or traditional publishing. And here we're seeing that happening with literary works as well. But this isn't the full story since some of these authors do not return and remain in this ambiguous and interstitial space. Also, this process of reintermation has value for the agents in the field who discover such works. And I think that's really important. The people who are actually valuing the works get, yeah, get symbolic um, recognition for being the discoverers of these books in various ways. Um, and also, finally, traditional institutions of symbolic valuation like publishers, print reviewers, and prizes, and so on, can come in after the fact to consecrate them once the value's kind of been established by these early processes. Um, I'll go ahead and stop there. Thank you. Thank you.